Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. Uh, Recently, I ordered a funny book. It's called The Worst Case Scenario Survival Handbook. And you can see the opening pages there up on the screen. Uh, One of the scenarios that you can learn how to avoid in the Worst Case Scenario Survival Handbook is how to escape charging giraffes. And so if any of you happen to end up in a zoo enclosure somehow, if you have this book, you'll know what to do in that worst case scenario. Now, now a lot of these are actually pretty funny, the scenarios. Like one of them is, how do you identify a murderous clown? I know some people have like clown fears, like you cannot look at a clown. Yeah, okay, we got one in the front row here. Clowns are scary. This book will help you identify when a clown is actually quite dangerous. Uh, One of the ones that I enjoy is what to do if your technology becomes self-aware. In our house, we don't talk mean to each other, but we do talk mean to Siri occasionally. Like if Siri doesn't get what we're saying, we'll be like, come on, Siri. But my fear is that Siri is going to become self-aware one day and not like being spoken to meanly. But this book tells you, Here's what you do if your technology becomes self-aware. But it also has stuff that's more serious. Uh, How to survive in more serious situations. How to survive in an earthquake. How to survive in a tornado. How to survive in a wildfire. How to survive and remain alive if you're lost in the wilderness or the mountains or at sea. Uh, If you're in the middle of some place, you don't want to be and the elements are working against you, you're in a place that's working against you being alive, the survival handbook tells you how to survive, how to remain alive. You're not at home, you're not in surroundings that are beneficial to you, everything is against you, here's how you survive. I like that, I like that because I think as Christians, there's something for us there. Uh, in 1 Peter, Peter starts off in 1 Peter chapter 1, writing to these believers, and he says, you're not at home, you're in exile. You're in surroundings that are not friendly to you. You're surrounded by things that are trying to kill you spiritually. And so he writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen who are living as exiles who are living not in a place that is friendly to their faith, but rather someplace where it's hard to be a Christian. Now, you and I can identify that with that, can, I, can we not? It is hard to be a Christian in our culture for several reasons. It's hard to be a Christian because a lot of times people are just hostile to the Christian faith. Not only that, but if people don't like Christians, they don't tend to treat us with respect but we're called to treat them with dignity and respect. And that's challenging. Not only that, but as Christians, we have a different ethic. We're called to live differently than the rest of the world. And that is challenging. But not only that, in this cultural moment, we see Christians doing stupid things. We see abuses of power in the church and things like that. And that makes it even harder to be a Christian because many people don't see us as good guys and girls, but rather bad guys and girls. How do we 
survive spiritually when the world doesn't want to keep us alive spiritually. As Christians, how do we remain spiritually alive? When Paul or when Peter writes in chapter 4 of this same letter, he addresses that and he gives us really three principles, three ways to survive in a worst-case scenario where it's hard to be a Christian in the culture. And the three things that Peter tells us is, one, you have to embrace your place. Two, you have to edit your priorities. And three, you have to entrust your position. First of all, embracing your place. Embracing your place. To remain spiritually alive, you have to embrace your place. If you are in a worst-case scenario, the worst thing that you can do is not be willing to embrace being in that place. Here's what I mean. If you are lost in the mountains, you are putting yourself more at risk if you spend two days going, why me? How in the world could this happen to me? I cannot believe that I'm in this space and in this place. Because if you do that, you will begin to panic and things will get, go from bad to worse. In fact, that worst case scenario book says, whatever situation you're in, do not panic. Stay calm in the face of darkness, loneliness, and the unknown, and you will greatly increase your chances of survival. About 80% of survival is your reaction to fear. Embrace your place. You may not want to be in the situation you're in, but you are in it. Embrace your place. Part of that is, first of all, just embracing the fact that you're in the middle of a test. Embracing your place means going, I am in the middle of a test, and I should not be surprised by that. That's what Peter says in verse 12. In verse 12, he says, dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. How many times are we tested by our, our faith is tested and immediately we think this is out of the ordinary. This is unique. This is unusual. But what Peter says, when we walk through those times of trial and testing, we need to not be surprised. We need to accept the fact that it's happening. When my, one of my kids was younger, she played soccer. And I love watching kids soccer. I love watching professional soccer, but kids soccer is just as entertaining because it's like herd soccer. You know what I mean? Like everyone's just running around. There's no positions. Like no one really knows what's going on. It's just crazy. And uh, my kid was on a team and we were playing another team. And there was one kid on the other team who like didn't even realize that they were playing soccer. And he would pick one kid out on our team. And he would begin to run in a circle around that person, like a shark swimming around prey. And he would get closer and closer to that particular kid. And then he'd come up and grab their jersey and just throw them down on the ground. Now, my guess is his parents watched like WWF or something like that. And like he got the sports confused. But I saw this kid do this to several other kids on our team. And I was like, okay, it's going to happen to my kid. So I called her over to the sideline. and I said, listen don't be surprised. Here's what's going to happen. 
I don't know what game this kid is playing, but he is not playing fair. And at some point, he's going to circle like a shark around you, grab you, and pull you down. Guess what? He did. And even in the moment, it was still surprising for her that he did that because it was violent. It was like the ref wasn't going to call, uh, give a card for it. But she got up, back up and kept going. When you and I are encircled, when something is coming after us, we need to expect that that is normal in the Christian life. Persecution, trials, challenges, it's just a normal part of being a Christian. We should not be surprised when these things happen to us because they happen to our Savior. In verse 1, Peter writes that since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same understanding. In other words, we as Christians are united to Jesus. Uh, Jesus' reality is our reality. We're forgiven because he's made himself one with us. But if Jesus suffered while he was in the flesh on earth, why would we be surprised when it's any different for us? Why would we be surprised? If our Savior suffers, we will suffer as well. And so Peter says, arm yourself also with the same understanding. Like, put on the weaponry of understanding that you will be attacked. Embrace the testing, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. What Peter's trying to tell us is that when we suffer for being a Christian, it gives us resolve to follow Christ with more fervor and perseverance and passion. If we suffer for being a Christian, it gives us more resolve to say no to the sin in our life. So we must embrace our place, embrace the testing, embrace the timing. When you're in an emergency situation, you're not really in control of what time it is or the timing to get out of that situation. You have to embrace the fact that time is moving and time is happening and you're somewhere that you don't want to be. And it requires you to think beyond the moment. You have to think, is it going to be cold at night? Do I need a place of shelter while I'm stuck in the desert? Is, it, is, it, is the water going to run out? You're not in control and you must think beyond the moment. And that's what Peter is telling the Christians in verses 2 and 3. In verses 2 and 3, he says, in order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. What Peter is saying is you and I have, as Christians have already, before we came to Christ, spent enough time doing what God didn't want us to do. Why waste time now doing what God doesn't want us to do? In a sense, sin time is over. Not in the sense that we won't struggle with sin, but in the sense that we give ourselves over to sin rather than giving ourselves over to the Savior who saved us from sin. On that same soccer team, my favorite player was my daughter. 
But my second favorite player was this kid named Dallas. And what I loved about little Dallas was he would show up to the game and he'd get out of the car and he would have snacks. And Dallas would get out of the car and he had like a bag of Lay's potato chips. And the warm-up for the game would start and Dallas would just walk right onto the field holding that open bag of Lay's potato chips. Just eating Lay's potato chips as he's warming up with the ball. Then the game would start and Dallas would just run up and down the field holding his snacks, eating along the way. And all of us are from the sideline yelling, Dallas, snack time is over, my friend. You have already eaten enough chips. It is time to play the game. And though that image is kind of ridiculous, that's what the image that we should have in our mind as Christians. Once we step onto the field for Jesus Christ, we need to put down the things that hinder us from playing the game with him. It's not just about playing a game. It's about surviving as a Christian. And we look at our lives and we see the things that Jesus says no to. And Jesus says, put those things down. You have already spent enough time before you knew me in doing what people who are not Christians do. Embrace the timing. The challenge with this as Christians, and one of the reasons that we struggle as Christians is because when we put sin down, the world around us gets surprised. Peter says in verse 4 that they are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living and they slander you. That word wild living just means like reckless, like not thinking about how God feels about the situation. But I'll tell you, if you start living your life according to God's will rather than according to the culture, you will feel pressure. You will feel pressure during this time. You will start to wonder how you can survive. But the way that you can survive is by walking humbly before God and realizing that your audience isn't your friends, isn't your family, isn't your culture. Your audience is ultimately God. And one day you will face him face to face. Peter goes on to tell us it's not just about embracing your testing or embracing the timing, it's about embracing your tininess, embracing the fragility of your life. If you have ever been lost in the wilderness, you know that you are tiny. Like, you don't get to call the shots. You don't get to make the rules. There is this thing happening in nature that is much bigger than you, and you don't get to determine when it rains or when water comes or when the animals come. You are in survival mode and things are fragile. And you must take care and caution. You must realize that you don't make the rules. Yesterday, I had an amazing opportunity. One of my friends is a shipboat captain in the Port of Miami. And he said, hey, why don't you come down to Port of Miami and we'll get on a cargo ship together and we'll take it out into the sea. And then that's where he gets off. He just navigates Port of Miami. And so I got on this massive cargo boat with him. And it was just, it was amazing. I've never done anything like this before in my life. And, um, but to get off the cargo boat, you have to go to the side of the cargo boat while the ship is sailing away from Miami. And you have to go down that little yellow ladder uh, or that yellow stepway onto the ladder hanging above the ocean, which the current is moving back towards the massive propellers of the cargo ship. 
And you have to hang on that and then get onto that little yellow boat that you see up there. And, and I'll tell you, I started to feel very fragile as we were heading towards that gangway, but there was no other way off. So I had to go forward, but I realized like, I don't make the rules here. Like, this is not time for me to get my cell phone out and do some selfies on the way down. Like, this is not time for me to have a joke or a laugh or pretend I'm gonna slip. I don't make the rules. There are rules that I have to live by. And so I listened to everything he said on the way down. He said, listen, when I get on the gangway, you stay at the top until I get on the ladder. Then you come down. When, when I get down to the bottom of the ship, then you get on the ladder. When you're on the ladder, you keep three points of contact at all times. Do not dangle and only have a hand and a foot. Three points of contact at all times. And when you get to the bottom, you have to commit to get on that yellow boat. Like, don't kind of halfway do it. You have to step off and step on or you will be in trouble. And so realizing that I don't make the rules, I did exactly what he said. <laughs> because if I were to fall in that water and get killed, my wife would kill me, right? <laughs> Look, I, I say that to say, you, you have to embrace your, your tininess in life, your tininess in situations of survival, because just like the situation was serious on the boat, our lives before God is serious. In verse five, Peter tells us that we will all give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. We can't play this life by our own rules because we're not the judge. God is. We have to listen to the, to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. And I know in this moment, I, know, I mean, I know in this moment, we're trying to be real in this series. I know in this moment, people are like, man, who is the church to talk about judgment? I mean, there have been so many failures in the church. There have been so many times when the church has fallen into legalism or abuse or corruption or whatever and whatever. How can the church talk about judgment? Well, the reason the church can talk about judgment is we're not talking about us being the judge. We're talking about God being the judge and us included in the people that get judged by God. Paul says, or Peter says in verse 15, listen, don't suffer by doing something stupid. Don't suffer by being a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. That's not really suffering. When the church does those things, when the church is corrupt, or the church falls short, that's not suffering. That's not the suffering that Peter is talking about. That's just the consequences of stupid sin. And we have to realize that as Christians, God's judgment is still on our right and wrong. God will still call us out as the church when we do things that are not according to his will. Like we don't get a free pass. He doesn't ignore it. It is still discerned by him as wrong. In verse 17, he says that judgment begins with God's house. For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. In other words, just because we're under grace doesn't mean God ignores sin. God still confronts us in our sin. But if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? 
See, I think the culture would say to us right now, well, listen, the church falls incredibly short, so sin doesn't matter. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says sin really matters. And if the church comes under scrutiny from God for their sin, but they're saved, how much worse will it be for those who are unsaved, who don't know Jesus, who don't know the forgiveness of sins? Dwayne Bond puts it this way. He says, if God takes the time to render judgment on Christians, how much more for people who don't follow Jesus and persistently walk in disobedience? Friends, part of embracing our place, part of embracing our tininess is to realize that God is the judge. As we go through trials and hardships, the only hope we continue to have is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only way for salvation, the only way to be forgiven, the only way to be justified is to repent and turn to Jesus. That is the good news. And so as we walk through challenges and hardships, we must embrace our place and edit our priorities. Edit our priorities. Now, if, if you're in the mountains and you're stuck there and it's cold, you have to figure out what your priorities are. And here's the thing. Your first priority is not escape. Your second priority is not food. I took a test on this once in, uh, like in a, in a pastoral cohort, and we had to figure out a way in this scenario, like how do we escape the mountains? And what they said is escape isn't the first thing you should worry about. Your two priorities, if you get stuck in the cold mountains and you're lost, are water and warmth. It's hydration and heat. Because if you run out of water, you can't go nowhere. And if you get cold, your body temperature will drop and you will die. So what's more important than figuring out how to escape, what's more important than getting food is hydration and heat. You have to edit your priorities when you're in a survival situation, whether it is to remain alive in the wilderness or to remain alive as a Christian. Paul, Peter tells us the same thing. He says, here's your priorities. First of all, prioritize prayer. Prioritize prayer. In verse 7, Peter says, be alert and sober-minded for what? For prayer. For prayer. It, it, Sam Storms puts it this way, we actually have to have a mental alertness. We actually have to have a vigilance to pray. Like, we can't just go to sleep in our prayer life. We have to continue to pray over and over and over again because praying is like water. It's like the water we drink every day. And you know that you can't just drink water in the morning and then you're good for a week, right? You have to drink water in the morning, in the late morning, in the noontime, afternoon, at night. You might have to get up in the middle of the night and have a drink of water. And then the next morning, you got to start all over again. And that's why Peter is saying, listen, part of what your priorities to remain is spiritually alive, part of your priorities is to prioritize prayer. Simple question. Right now, are you prioritizing prayer? Are you prioritizing prayer in your spiritual life? I think prioritizing prayer is like going out and searching for water. Uh, sometimes you've got to look a while until it clicks, and sometimes it's right there. But keep praying. 
Keep praying. It is how you remain spiritually alive. Prioritize prayer and prioritize love. In verse 8, Peter writes, maintain constant love for one another. But not just maintain constant love for one another. Above all, the greatest priority you have in a situation where you're trying to remain spiritually alive is to maintain constant love for one another. Jesus said that as times get harder, the love of many will grow cold. The love of many will grow cold. That means that you and I have to do something in order to avoid our love running out. Just like a fire. You can't start a fire and then just leave it. You have to continue to blow wind on it. You have to be, continue to put wood on it. And for us as Christians, we have to continue adding God's love uh, into our family here in order that love be a constant priority. And, and love, it's not some ambiguous feeling. It's an action. It's what we do for one another. Look how practically Peter puts it in verse 9 and 10. He says that in order to love, be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the grace of God. I, I love that. You want to love? You want to keep the family warm? Open your home and do it without complaining. Take someone out to dinner and pay for their meal. You, you want to keep the family warm and the fire going? Serve one another. Do actions that benefit other people and don't benefit you. You can do that on Sunday morning by joining a ministry team. You can do that during the week by blessing someone in our church who's having a rough season. You can do that by showing up and just caring for someone in your life. That's how we survive spiritually in the midst of a tough season. Hospitality service, and love. Have you made room in your life to love other people, to love people in this church? Have you edited your priorities so that you can, above all, maintain constant love? So often we can get caught up with other priorities that aren't bad priorities. Our career, our goals, our finances, finding that special someone, all those are good things. All those are priorities. But have we made room for what Peter says is the greatest priority? Loving one another. Loving one another with the love that God has loved us with. And I know at times we will run out of love. We will get tired. We will grow weary. But that's because we're trying to love in our own strength. You and I will run out of love. But God never runs out of love for us. In that, we find the power to love each other. Embrace your place, edit your priorities, and then lastly, entrust your position. There's been a couple times where I've been lost in the wilderness, and I've had a map on me some of those times, and I've not had a map on me others of those times. And either way, it's scary. But if you have a map on you, you can at least look at where you are and sort of trust what the map says about where you are. You can trust your position. But that's not exactly what Peter's saying when he says that we should entrust our position to God. It's not necessarily that we know where we are. It's that God knows where we are. 
And we may feel lost, but God has not lost us. We may not know what's coming next, but God knows what's coming next. And as you not necessarily see where you are, but see the God who knows where you are, you are able to entrust your position to him. When you and I receive pushback for our faith, when we are persecuted as Christians, it often feels like we have lost our orientation and we don't know uh, where God is. But look what Peter says in verse 13 and 14. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. In the very moment when you and I feel like God is farthest away, when we're suffering for our faith, it is the very same moment when God's spirit is resting on us and with us. When you walk through hardship, can you entrust yourself to the God who knows where you are and sends his spirit to help you get through persecution? You're not alone in your position, even though it feels like you're alone. God is with you. And in fact, you and I have to get more used to this because this becomes normal for a Christian. When we are experiencing hardship or persecution or ridicule for our faith, we are not in that position because God screwed up. We are in that position because we're Christians, just like Jesus. In verse 16, Peter says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. In other words, if you're being persecuted for Christ, it's because you're associated with Christ. <laughs> it's not a surprise to God. God has not messed up. You might not have even done anything wrong. We have to understand that just because persecution comes, it doesn't mean that God is absent it means the opposite, that Christ is with us. And Christ is so with us that the culture identifies Jesus in us and can push back against that in us. And if we rest in who God is, it enables us to not just survive, but actually thrive. To rise above our circumstances and see those people who are threatening our very spiritual lives and instead of threatening them back, doing good to them. Look how he closes this chapter in verse 19. So then, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what Friends, in this moment that we live in, it is just going to be harder and harder to be a Christian. Can we decide now that we have to embrace the place that we're in, that we have to edit our priorities, and we have to entrust the position that God puts us in, whether it be a season where there is no hardship or no persecution, or whether it be hardship after challenge after trial. But those hardships and trials do not mean it is time for us to give up means it is time to entrust ourselves to our Creator and do good to the very people who are trying to stop us. Let's pray. 
Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcast. For more information, check us out at www.newcityhh.com. We'll see you next week.